Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello, friends, and welcome to yet another episode of 119, a Twin Peaks podcast. Today, we are talking about part six. Don't die. My name is Nick. I am joined by my trusty co-host, Dylan. How are you this morning, my friend? Dude, I am ready to talk about this episode. <laughs> There's There are many highs and many lows, but I am ready. You know, I, I agree with you on that. Um, I would describe this episode as being a very Dougie-heavy episode of Twin Peaks. Like, I don't know if this has the most Dougie of any one episode in the season, but it has to be up there. And my recollection of the, the the night that this episode aired was that this was really when I started to hear a lot of people start to really complain about Dougie. Like, like this yeah. is when the Dougie hate really just kicked up a notch. I think it was, um, yeah, it was one of the more divisive of the earlier episodes. Uh, probably, yeah, because there's, not only is there a lot of Dougie, it's a lot of slow Dougie. It's a lot of yeah. um, very meticulous scenes and very long, the same shots kind of back and forth over and over again. They are getting to something, but I remember the, my first time watching it, I was not really hip to what the fuck was going on or uh, why Dougie was drawing stairs and ladders and stuff on these documents. And But watching it a second time, I, I enjoyed it a lot more. Uh, and I find myself even even more kind of laughing at the, the silliness of Dougie. And there are some like amazing, funny Dougie moments in this episode as well. Oh yeah, there there's some definite Dougie highlights, and uh, yeah, like th- there are no bad episodes of this show. Um, no, some are definitely better than others, um, and this one would not be anywhere near my top uh, in terms of the rankings of episodes, but still, uh, many great things within it. So, yeah. Without any further ado, let's discuss Twin Peaks: The Return, Part Six. Don't die. $25,000. That is my first, last, and only offer. What kind of world are we living in where people can behave like this? Treat other people this way without any compassion or feeling for their suffering? We are living in a dark, dark age, and you are part of the problem. Now, I suggest you take a good long look at yourselves because I never want to see either of you again. We pick up here exactly where part five ended. We see Dougie sort of caressing the shoe of the sheriff statue, I believe. Or is it, I think he, he he might actually be struggling with his jacket at this point. He's tugging on his <laughs> I, sleeve. He It ends with yeah. him caressing the shoe uh, and then comes right. back in with him sort of, yeah, he's in some predicament with his ugly ass green sleeve. 
Yeah, maybe he just desperately wants to get it off of him because he realizes just how offensively hideous it is. I mean, that's, com- that's my theory. Compared to his badass black FBI agent suit, it is like it's like the uh, polar opposite in terms of style. So I remember last episode I mentioned something about the FBI building uh, and the connection to the statue. So I actually pulled up. I went into that episode and I found what I was talking about. So I will. I'm going to send you this little screenshot and then I'll send you this, the statue uh, that Dougie okay. is uh, seemingly uh, interested in. And I think I I may have an idea as to like what the deal with the statue is. All right. So here's the statue that is on top of apparently I assume the FBI headquarters in Philadelphia because this is the shot we get right before um, we enter into that scene and we hit, get our hit with the whole congressman's dilemma. So right, is this supposed to be Ben Franklin? I don't know. It might be. It's. I mean, it's uh, makes sense because it's Philadelphia. But the thing that's notable right. to me is the hat. Um, there, it's not the same type of hat, but the sheriff statue has a similar hat, uh, like a sort of. I think it's almost like a bowler cap type thing, and it is holding out his arms and has these like long sleeves, um, like kind of like hanging sleeves. My whole thing is, I think that this reminds Dougie of the of the fbi headquarters and also with like his the double meaning on like agent and case files these things he keeps bringing up um Mm -hmm. i think i think it's just that might be part of why he's fixated on it um and also i mean that shot would make sense just to establish where we are and you know that we're the in philadelphia but i think right that was that was the first thing that popped into my brain so i chased it down and i think it was yeah it's close enough yeah, no, you're right. It makes total sense. And we know that Cooper has been at the Philadelphia office because that's where we see him in Firewalk with me. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, that makes total sense. He is really drawn to the statue. He really does not want to leave, so much so that the security guard comes up and very patiently tells him that he cannot loiter there. And I really enjoy the level of compassion that the security guard has for Dougie here. Yeah. Like, he can tell, he can obviously tell that something is not right with Dougie. Yeah. So, uh, he sorts, he sorts of, he sort of treats him accordingly. He's very patient with him. He drives him home, even though Dougie isn't capable of giving him an address. You know, he just, he, he tells the security guard that he lives at the house with the red door on Lancelot Court, just like he did with the, uh, the cab driver in the previous episode. Right. And he very, uh, you know, gingerly pushes his hand away from the bad. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't get angry. There, I think, um, something that I noticed this episode is that there is a lot of juxtaposition between compassion and, uh, the opposite. We would say maybe extreme, um, sociopathy or psychopathy mm, um yeah we're gonna see uh i i have i've always felt that twin peaks at its um core is up maybe not about but features duality as a central theme um and in a lot of these episodes there is interesting juxtaposition with scenes and with emotions and feelings associated with those scenes but i think certain characters like namely the security guard and then Janie E um, sort of display these overt compassionate um, sort of actions. Whereas we have like Richard Horn and Ike the Spike doing the exact complete opposite. 
Um, and it mm-hmm. creates it, it actually for as much of like not a dud as this episode might have been the first time around, um, but maybe just a little heavy on the Dougie side there. I think there's a lot of that stuff going on that's that watching it this time through made it a little bit more. Um, and I had to look, my eyes were a little bit closer to the screen, a little bit more attention to detail or to like maybe the the, the subtext to what was going on in all of these scenes. Right. Yeah, and that duality that you talked about between uh, like extreme compassion and extreme cruelty, I think is going to show up in a big way in the accident scene later on that we're going to talk about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, security guard takes Dougie home. <laughs> He's entranced by the badge, as you mentioned. Uh, just, just a funny bit. Yeah, I just, I, just, I, I enjoy how he's uh, how drawn he is to the just these these symbols of authority throughout the show. Right, he's re- they remind him of uh, something. <laughs> sure, his glory days. Right, and uh, we get a pretty bizarre domestic scene here at the Jones household. <laughs> um, Janie E finally suggests taking Dougie to the doctor, which like should have happened like three episodes ago. Yeah, give or take. Uh, so, yeah, she's... I would describe Janie E during the scenes as... She's she's a little impatient with Dougie, and she's definitely like fed up with his shit to a certain extent, but she is also, I think, um, pr- pretty loving towards him. You know, she doesn't... I don't, I don't get the sense that she is... Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't totally feel like she is in a loveless marriage with this, uh, this Dougie, um, at least the incarnation that, uh, we saw in part three. No, because she ends their exchange with, uh, an O Dougie and kisses him on the head. Um, something which definitely caught my attention because I was watching this whole scene being like, man, how do you, (laughs) how do you put up with that shit? How do you put up with him? clearly cheating on you and owing fifty thousand dollars to anonymous gangsters and then like it all ends with you being like oh dougie like it's like it's an uh like it's a 1960s sitcom like some crazy whatever some crazy like i don't know it was just so bizarre to me that he actually like the, the whole dougie situation obviously is very bizarre but how many times throughout the season he completely acts like an totally insane person and it always rounds out with him getting the benefit of the doubt and getting kissed on the head and getting patted and being like, it's okay, Dougie. Uh, it just really stands out to me. Yeah. And he's just sitting there. He's eating, I think he's got a sandwich and he's eating his chips. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, uh, he takes his chips up to say goodnight to Sonny Jim at Janie's request. And the Dougie Sonny Jim relationship continues to be uh, a delightful one. Sonny Jim really loves his dad. He's particularly, uh, enthralled with this this clapping game where they just they clap and the light turns off and on and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's cute. I, I enjoy it. Uh, and I also I think it's notable the degree to which Sunny Jim really represents a sort of antiquated depiction of of boyhood. You know, like he's very into cowboys and he's just sitting there reading a book and he has a cowboy light. I don't really. I mean, it's been a long time since I've been a a boy of Sonny Jim's age, but I I don't really think that 
modern little boys are quite as stoked on cowboys as they once were. And that's probably just uh, a projection of, of David Lynch and Mark Frost's childhood, I'm guessing. It could be. He's also, he's reading a, um, he's reading a Hardy Boys book, which I found really interesting. Yes. So, you know, so the detective uh, or the son of, of Dougie slash Cooper is reading this detective novel. He also says um, the first thing, or maybe the only thing we hear Sonny Jim say is, uh, I've already brushed my teeth. Which is an interesting mm-hmm. um, counterpoint to the last thing we hear Cooper say in the original run, which is I haven't, but I haven't brushed my teeth yet. I didn't even catch that. That's that's a good catch. Yeah, it's yeah, probably just a just a nice little callback. Apparently, Dougie is being blackmailed by these gangsters that he owes money to. We see that Janie E has received some photos of Dougie with Jade, to which. Uh, Dougie Cooper responds uh, reflexively, Jade give two rides. <laughs> and, Which uh, is classic, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. And then Naomi Watts with the great delivery, I'll bet she did, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then she continues to be pissed off at Dougie. The phone rings, and she's like, aren't you going to answer that? Maybe it's Jade calling. And I, I love the idea that Janie E might expect Dougie in his state to answer the phone. <laughs> I know. Just the chops on display with Naomi Watts this whole episode is just like otherworldly. I really can't I can't get enough of her. Oh hell yeah. And we're going to talk about the, her best scene right now. And in fact, for this scene, there's a lot of jumping around in this episode. So I've kind of just uh I've kind of just condensed the 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 stuff that we're going to talk about into like certain settings and, and characters and through lines just so we can knock them out all at once. Otherwise we're just going to kind of be all over the place. So the, the, the scene where she tells off these gangsters happens a little bit later, but she gives this, this, <laughs> this long monologue to them where she essentially lectures them in this very frosty way about how, you know, she and Dougie, they drive cheap, cheap, terrible cars uh, you know, and they are the 99% and they are living in a dark, dark age. And like we've mentioned before, Frost has been very open about, um, the, uh, the economic inspirations behind this season. And this is one of the most clear examples of that for sure. Yeah. Janie E in the scene, um, I think really represents that, that extreme compassion uh, that I mentioned earlier. And, through the lens of uh, the whole economic crisis and her describing just the type of people that they are like the 99% and watching the faces of these two actors just kind of like take it in a little bit just because I don't know if she has this like she has such like a, a um, like a matriarch energy over she's just sort of completely dominating the idea and it, it um, uh, I love it I love every moment of Naomi watching this episode honestly uh, but especially just the talking to she gives these two thugs yeah and i like she gets really feisty like she she takes out that big giant roll of money which i think is like like twenty five thousand dollars or something like that it's about half of what dougie actually owes she takes it out and she starts just like waving it around like as she's telling them off it's really good i think she literally says do people have no compassion these days and like slams into his <laughs> chest yeah exactly and she's just like this is this is all the money she's gonna give them, and uh, you know they can fuck off as far as she's concerned. 
and uh they don't you know they don't they don't try to they don't try to fight her on it no they, they just kind of let it happen and the guy goes tough dame <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh interestingly enough one of the actors in this scene jeremy davies is the same guy that shows up later in carrie page's house dead in part 18 whoa really is that a yeah. same actor Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the same actor. And he, is he um, credited as, like, Dead Man, or is he credited in the same way? Uh, I don't think he's actually credited okay. at all in the credits, but it it is confirmed to be the same guy. I hmm. don't know... I don't know how much we can really draw from that. I think it's maybe just more of this idea that we see in the finale of... Um, this sort of just this shuffling around of identities. Yeah. Maybe, you know, the, the guy who was the gangster in part six is like a totally different guy in part 18. I think um, a lot of or it. Maybe just that maybe maybe just a different version of the, the same guy. Yeah, who knows? I think a lot of it has to do with Lynch's obsession with the Wizard of Oz. And I think that's where like the a lot of the doppelganger, like even double naming conventions come from. Where you in like a it's huge in Mulholland Drive, like where Mulholland Drives most of that movie is, a, you know, a dream or a dreamlike projection based on the last, uh, you know, the last like whatever quarter of that movie or probably even less where we find out what actually is happening in that woman's life that caused her to have that type of dream. I think that there's, you know, that that kind of stuff shows up a ton in the Return. Yeah, I think there's just a, a whole lot of that like. You know the same actor that plays the Tin Man in the in the uh, in the Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion are the ones who like wake Dorothy up from her uh, from her dream, and I think uh, just so much of that, like, so much of that goes into Lynch's work in general. But I I see it just coming up so many times uh, in the Return. Yeah, it is surprising just how often the Wizard of Oz stuff comes up in his work. It's like probably like the main reference for Lynch. Um, I'd say so, or at least like you can see that's where he's clearly drawn influence from consistently for decades. Yeah, consciously or not, you know. Right. Just sort of uh, inserted amongst all of these scenes, we actually get a, a pretty cool callback, I think, which is the traffic light from Twin Peaks. It's it's always just like a it's in the past it's always just been sort of a nice tone setter, you know it's mm-hmm. it's sort of been indicative of the idea that maybe there is some sort of evil afoot in Twin Peaks, um, and we definitely see that in this episode. Yeah, it's interesting because that comes at right after right as Dougie is I think looking at the uh, case files. And he sees Lucky Seven Insurance and sort of like draws his finger up to the seven. And as he does mm-hmm. that, you get this um, like sort of you get this hum that sort of carries over into the, the stoplight scene, which I've noticed that a lot. And uh, I think it's in probably a lot of episodes, but in this one in particular, the sound editing almost acts as like a foreshadowing where sort of sounds from other scenes bleed into the scene before or after to sort of like mm-hmm. premoni- be as, as like a premonition of how they're going to connect and you hear this noise and then you see the stoplight and then that same noise persists through to uh, Mike wagging his arm around in the red room so 
Um, and this this comes up that sound hum thing comes up again um, in the scene with Richard Horn, which we'll get to. But that the hum of the engine um, is sort of shows up about like two or three seconds before the scenes cut, uh, and it's sort of like this this ominous. Um, I think it's just a way to because I remember watching that scene for the first time. I I got the vibe something really terrible is about to happen. Like it's it's not it's it's pretty obvious but that sound editing thing um i think is really cool it's a really cool effect that uh like you said the stoplight's a tone setter it almost like primes you for that and then you see that and you just know okay something's about to happen yeah there's a lot of really effective subtle editing in this show like that that you probably don't even appreciate the first time but i'm definitely noticing the more times that i watch it yeah, I think there's a reason that that Lynch is almost always the sound editor on his work because he must place a high level of importance on that in just how he tells his stories. The sound is just vital. Yeah, absolutely. And every time I've ever had the occasion to go see a Lynch work on the big screen, that's always the thing that I that I come away from. Mm-hmm. That I come away with from it is like the sound is just so profound. Like when I saw Eraserhead on the big screen for the first time, you know, I had already seen the movie several times before that, but man, just the sound work is brilliant. It's the same for me. Seeing Eraserhead uh, in the theater was just a, it was like louder than a lot of shows I've been to. Like it was just so, Mm -hmm. it was such a, and it's like a different kind of loud. And there's a lot of scenes that build into this really intense, like almost hiss that, completely drop out into silence in the next scene which is uh yeah it's an experience in the theater for sure yeah and lynch famously anytime he's asked about the ideal conditions for watching one of his films he'll always say something along the lines of like turn the sound all the way up you know yeah isn't there some note that he gave i think it was when inland empire was in theaters and it was to all the the theaters on how to like the decibel level to raise the yeah. the film to or whatever. Yeah, I it might have been Inland Empire. I don't remember exactly which film it was, but I, I do recall seeing the exact same um <laughs> the exact same note that you're talking it's like, about. Like this there. is not a mistake. I want this different than standard. <laughs> Please do this. Yep, yep. So Mike shows up in front of Dougie, tells him you have to wake up, don't die. Which uh you know, is I'm sure a sentiment expressed by many a Twin Peaks fan during this episode. Yeah, uh, Mike, Mike, Mike has a couple of those those audience surrogate type moments in this show. Um, Oddly enough, as yeah, as much of a uh, hand waving kind of creepy figure he is, he seems to say exactly what I'm thinking most of the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then we get a very long scene of Dougie doing all these drawings on the case files, he is guided by these tiny lights that show up on the pages. Yeah, and we can we can assume that this is of a similar nature as, you know, the the red room image appearing above the slot machines and the the green light flashing on Anthony's face. It's just it's these uh, you know, we can assume lodge uh, forces guiding him to um to to further his his plot if you will 
Yeah, I didn't know if it was supposed to be like Mike Waite wagging his arm around. If that was supposed to be like him, like sort of uh, superimposed over that space and uh. sort of like <laughs> being like here and now here, just walking around the room, like tr- drawing these weird shapes. Whoever, whatever. Because right, it doesn't doesn't he like point up or something? Yeah, he does indicate in some way that he's. I mean, it happens right afterwards, so obviously he's involved in it. I don't know what this has to do with don't you have to wake up, don't die though. Um, I don't remember yeah. if that if like Anthony getting implicated in this ha- has any bearing on Dougie sticking a fork in the in the yeah, outlet. It's just- it's you know the the fireman and mike and all those guys they're playing fourth dimensional chess here you know <laughs> it's just this is <laughs> it's like i have to rearrange dougie drawing, dougie drawing ladders and stairs on on these case files is just uh one of many steps to get him to to stick the uh the fork into the electrical socket yeah so. everything happens for a reason apparently yep <sighs> yep so dougie spends a great deal of time drawing a series of ladders and stairs and lines leading from Anthony's name to to other points on these pages. Some people have speculated that maybe he's remembering the ladder that he climbed up to uh to get to the uh, the outside of the space cube when he's with Nido. Hmm. Maybe, sure, why not? I me my half-baked idea is that maybe it's not a ladder. And maybe it's stairs from a front-facing perspective, and then he drew <laughs> other stairs from another perspective to say, "Look at this from a different perspective." <laughs> That's all I got. Mm. Um, I mean, mm. o- other than like, you know, drawing like literal dots and lines connecting names and and different things. Like, I, I mean, I understand how you could implicate someone with that, but stairs and and and, and ladders. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and. All of this is set to Windswept by Johnny Jewel, which we get again. We closed episode five with it. We opened episode six with it. And the scene plays again. I actually don't love the fact that we hear this song again. I, th- I thought it was like a really poignant uh, emotional underpinning to the sheriff scenes. And to just reuse it again so quickly and under such decidedly non-emotional circumstances... It was just kind of like, uh, you couldn't use the different song. You know? Yeah, I don't know how it necessarily fits thematically with that scene, or like how those two scenes are like related thematically. I don't think they are. Um, no. Or at least those those are two ideas. But it's a nice song. I mean, it's... it's it, yeah, it, no, it I works. love the song. It's a little sleuthy. Like, it's kind of got that, that nocturne feel to it. Uh, but I do agree, it, it has a nice... Though even like just ending the episode on it, it had such a nice mark and like a nice, um, like a yeah, you know, like I, I felt like that imprinted on that shot or those scenes of Dougie just sitting there pondering over the statue. Yeah, so we get it again here. That they're they had to put some sort of music over this, right? Because it is such a long scene, but. Just like, you know, why do we have to use the same one that we just heard a few minutes ago? Anyways, that's just that's just a little little nitpick that I have. And I will say, both this scene and the scene that we get a little bit later with Bushnell looking at these case files, these are probably uh, some of the only scenes during this season where my, uh, my fast-forward finger starts feeling a little itchy. 
You know what I'm saying? I feel you. Like, like it's so long. Like both of the, I clocked both of these scenes, and they each are like a full like three minutes long. Yeah. Of just looking at papers, it's pretty excessive. It is. I I personally didn't mind it. Um, while watching it, I was acknowledging how long they are. I'm a sucker for that. I think. Um, I'm a sucker for that the longer you look at something almost like the weirder it starts to look it's like saying the same word over and over again until it sounds stupid uh it almost has that effect on me where i get like almost mesmerized by it and i was trying to like parse what he was trying to do obviously to no avail like i have no idea what he's trying to do but i was trying to like look at okay now he's opening this one whose name is on that who is that a name that i saw on the other one uh i did not catch anything but and then with the Bushnell scene, at least we get uh, the the little bits of Dougie looking over at Bushnell up on in his poster and then making fists and then but then as soon as it looks like as soon as he thinks Bushnell notices he starts drinking his coffee like in the same sort of like meek position and then goes back and makes the fists again. Uh, right. Yeah. He yeah. Puts, put, puts his dukes up. Yeah. It's good. I. But it's good. but as far as like the. I'm probably the, the, the peak demographic for those really long, <laughs> annoying scenes that everyone else seems to hate. Sure. I just, I don't know. I no, I, myself... I generally I generally love them as well, but this one just didn't do it for me. All the names that you mentioned and, and stuff on the case files, mm-hmm. aside from Anthony Sinclair, they're literally just names of Twin Peaks crew members. Like, they don't, they don't have any significance. I'm it's sure like the name know. of, like, the, the hairdresser and stuff like that. They're just placeholder names. They don't, they don't mean anything. Yeah, yeah, there's no one from, no, hey, I was looking, I was like, hmm, is someone's name on this for, like, that shows up in one random-ass scene at the Roadhouse, but no, didn't see anything. D- yeah, so Dougie, he, he makes these very, very important, apparently, etchings, very wrought with significance. He does so using his uh, his pencil like a kindergartner, sort yeah. of palming it. Holding the whole, uh, which his is, whole hand. Yeah, which is just, you know, just just funny. When he shows up to Lucky Seven, we get another little piece of elevator comedy here, oh, um, yeah. uh, which is always some of the best stuff. He just loves riding the elevator, man. Just he, loves riding the elevator. He loves rides. Phil Bisbee's. Period. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does. He does. The elevator gives two rides. So Phil Bisbee is just uh, exasperated, trying to get Dougie to to come through the elevator, but Dougie just has this just huge shitting grin on his face yeah it gets like, bigger just, every time every time that it closes and opens <laughs> he's just having a blast riding the elevator going up and down just waiting for the door to open and close it's amazing yeah so it's just really just some of the like simple silly dougie moments are like just i don't know i, lo- I love them even more this time around because they're they're thrown in there with the really like meticulous boring dougie moments as well uh and you never know what you're in for and every time kyle mclaughlin's on the screen it's like you never know what the hell is going to happen um at least the first time around i didn't it's just so it's so funny yeah any and all dougie related comedy i am i'm here for 100 percent. so bushnell he looks at these case files for a very long time as we mentioned all of this in effect implicates anthony somehow I don't think we ever figure out exactly how, but because uh, I don't, I don't, 
I'm, all of this is so hard to keep straight, but I don't think it has anything to do with the, the Mitchum brothers case. I could be wrong about that, but mm. yeah, so... It was just like different that, random insurance policies that... Yeah. yeah nothing nothing yeah, overtly and, related to anything we know about. Yeah, Anthony apparently has a, a pattern of defrauding his own company or something along those lines. That That's all we really know. Mm-hmm. Bushnell is just blown away by this information that Dougie has presented him with. Like, he is just, wow just such wisdom coming from dougie such 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 insight yeah well he he's like what the hell is this at at first and then slowly over three minutes apparently comes to realize yeah and he dougie certainly has given him a lot to think about like any good old school guy he, he he reaches for dougie's hand and uh like as dougie is wont to do he he also goes for the handshake but he just turns around (laughs) and faces the complete opposite direction and bushnell is just totally baffled and his face is amazing and this is one of the moments that just makes me laugh hysterically every time this is my new move at parties this is it this is how i'm gonna meet (laughs) friends this is it guys just walk up to someone well actually you gotta have someone offer to shake your hand first that might be tricky on my part it's it's so funny though it's it's like when he he extends his hand but then he twists his hand first and then his arm and it's like his body like his arm follows his hand and his body follows his arm until he's all the way turned around like he doesn't even realize what he's doing like he's looking at his own hand while it's happening and bushnell bushnell finds it funny too he he says something like oh you are you're an interesting one dougie or something like that um, but that yep. that might be the pinnacle. <laughs> that's that's some of the funniest Dougie shit. Besides maybe him walking into the pane of glass, which I can't wait for. I don't know what episode it is, but I'm just uh, like waiting so hard <laughs> for that. Yeah, we've we've got a while, but we we might do a full ten minutes on him walking into the glass. Oh, we'll man. see. Yeah, at least a tight five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <clears throat> sticking around in Vegas. We do get a brief scene here of the police retrieving Dougie's license plate from on the roof. I love that. This is pro- we know that <laughs> this is probably a Breaking Bad shout out, right? With the pizza and everything. I don't like, know. We know that Lynch. I've never seen it. Oh, you never seen Breaking Bad? Nope. Oh, okay. Well, there's there's a there's a not. famous scene where Brian Cranston like throws uh, a pizza on top of his roof, mm-hmm. like a, just like a just like a full pizza, like out of anger. <laughs> and we know that we know that Lynch has said that he was a big fan of Breaking Bad. So, oh, okay. I always I always looked at this as like maybe just a a, a nice little Breaking Bad reference. That would make sense. I thought it was a funny gag because there's uh I actually didn't know about any of that, but they're showing all of the the car parts and like with the evidence markers all scattered across the pavement, and then it's just like cuts to the sky like up on a ladder is like found the plate and it's up on the roof i don't know i just thought it was silly like the whole thing it was a little yeah. slapsticky but that that probably makes more sense because it does seem like that i think i even like now that you said that about the pizza i feel like i've probably seen like screenshots or like a picture of that online somewhere and it makes sense yeah it's it's definitely it's definitely one of the more uh indelible moments from making that it, it shows up a lot 
And across the street from all this, we get our third appearance of the 119 lady who is just doing 119, 119. Yep. Which makes a certain degree of sense because uh, the cops are across the street. She's trying to help, man. She's trying her best. She's she's got it wrong. <laughs> she you gotta get a phone. You gotta do it in the opposite order. Right. But she's doing right I mean, for a crackhead. You know, she's doing okay. She's trying. She's trying to do the right thing. Be a good Samantha. Yeah, and she's drinking that. Uh, she's drinking that terrible bourbon that you hate. As oh well, man. So she's she's clearly not in the right state of mind. No, that stuff. That stuff will. Uh, that stuff will steal your lunch money. I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. It's not good. Yeah, maybe she. Maybe she thought that she actually called the police just by screaming one one nine. Yeah, I feel like that's something I would do if I was drinking Evan Williams. So makes sense. Yep, just just trying to trying to make sense of one one nine lady. I don't think we really can, but she's there, and uh, she's got things to say. Yeah, so. just like us. Boom. Yeah, connection made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, sticking around in Vegas, we get another Duncan Todd scene. He sees the red square, which I personally speculate is a result of. Mr. C's whole uh, telephone stunt in the prison, mm-hmm. but, but that's that's pure speculation. But that's just that's just my my read on it. I don't think it's a crazy leap in logic because that's the last thing we see with with his boss interacting with te- technology and delivering some sort of weird code, and then for mm-hmm. it to manifest as this innocuous just bloop makes sense. Yeah, to me. So we we know, we know that Lorraine's plan to kill Dougie via the hitmen did not go as 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 planned. So Duncan sees this red square show up on his laptop, and it's very alarming to him, as it would be for anybody, I'm sure. And so he, he reaches into the safe and he he takes out a couple photos of Dougie and Lorraine. These photos make their way to Ike the Spike in a hotel room. In Vegas. Now, Ike the Spike is doing some work here. He's he's rolling dice and then recording the results. Yeah. I don't know if he's like doing some sort of like statistical study about dice or something. I think he's probably he's probably trying to figure out what he wants to make for his next D and D character. And he's like, all right, well, I can ro- I get two d six damage with this character, so let me roll two d six and figure out the average of like twenty of those, and then this one gives me one d twelve, and let's see what the difference is. That's my theory. <laughs> Listen, you're the D and D expert here, so I will defer to you on those matters. Yeah, that's uh, that's just that's, that's a that's yeah, that's a theory that I'm perfectly willing to buy. There's a lot of weirdos that play D and D, and like this bike's definitely a weirdo, so it, mm-hmm. it checks out. Yeah, yeah, I I, I believe it one hundred percent. He pulls out the photos of Dougie and Lorraine, and this song once again blunted. Blunted, yes. Starts 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 playing as soon as he sees Lorraine's photograph, uh, which is just very odd. Like Lorraine, just wherever Lorraine goes, the song follows. It's just funny. When, when David Lynch saw this actress's face, he just thought, "This is the song that needs to be playing." At all times, even when she's being murdered. I wonder if it was something like that, or maybe like that song was playing for some reason the first time he met her, or what. But <laughs> but there's there's like really nothing about that song and that lady that like remind me of each other at all. Besides, I mean now they do because it's been um, it's been it's been established so many times. But like her sitting there biting her nails and being crazy and like nervous and scared. Like if it was me picking the music, I might have picked something like I don't know. I would have picked like uh, 
uh, like that Converge song, Hell to Pay, where it just sounds like someone's <laughs> losing their mind. Um, but no, he picks Blunted. But I do love how Blunted ends the moment like the spike drives his spike through her head, the photo <laughs> of her head. Uh, another excellent sound editing decision. Yeah, and then Ike drives his ice pick or whatever it is uh, for real into Lorraine in a uh, incredibly brutal, horrific murder scene. Yep, where he is, he apparently murdered the lady down, or someone who screamed really loud downstairs uh, prior to that, and then the witness, the poor witness. But yeah, very gross, yeah. very gross and very... Uh, oh, not man, this is, this is like... This is just absolutely brutal, man. Yeah. Like the the close the close-ups of like the ice pit going into her flesh and just the blood everywhere and like the close-ups on her face and the close-ups on his face. It is just it is as grisly as it gets. Like holy shit. Death is not portrayed um in any way digestibly in this show. Like it, it's mm. really not. Like every I think pretty much every character who dies dies in some sort of really horrific, awful fashion. Or at least most of the right, time, except for the log lady, I guess. True, she gets well. Th- that <laughs> makes sense. She she gets the uh, the glory of of just this peaceful yeah. going, and we don't have to watch her get mm-hmm. blown up by some weird extra dimensional <laughs> trap, or uh, yeah, or otherwise fucking stabbed to death, or. Uh, hit by a truck or anything equally terrible. Yeah, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that I'm glad that none of those things happened to the log lady. The log lady is she's just she's the patron saint of Twin Peaks. We'll say she's just the uh, the heart and soul. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, Ike the Spike is is not the heart and soul of Twin Peaks. No, he's like um, the bowels. <laughs> as he's murdering Lorraine. He uh, he catches a glimpse of somebody seeing him do this crime, and he turns around, and just the look on his face of just pure maniacal rage is insane. And he turns around, and he just he uh, he runs at her, he murders her off screen, and wouldn't you know it, his ice pick is bent, and he's he's crushed by this. He he looks at the ice pick just with the look of like. Like his pet cat had died or something like that. It's his namesake. And he actually, he literally goes, oh no. Like in that exact tone. Like like he, he turns into like a little kid who's just like realized his, his uh, Crash Bandicoot save got deleted. And he's like, oh no. <laughs> Which, yeah. I think that's a little black humor from uh, Mr. Lynch there. Yeah, this is, this is that Lynchian shit right here. Like... It's it's not the brutal murder. It's the totally absurd lamenting over the bent ice pick afterwards. Like that's that's what's lynching. I mean, right there, he's Ike the Spike. So in a lot of ways, it's like he felt that he was the one who took the brunt of that damage, and he's just he identifies with that spike so much. I can only imagine because if I named myself after an object and that object was bent while I was murdering somebody, I would be upset too. Yep. So, um lives were lost ice picks were bent it was just a tragic scene all around and a totally normal conversation for us yeah (sighs) yep so let's go back to twin peaks (laughs) and we get just an absolutely wholesome scene at the double r 
probably the most like classic just old school just heartwarming of of double r scenes i think in this series oh yeah we get um we get a couple little throwbacks we have miriam but then we also have uh the giggling german waitress i don't know she does she have a name she must i just don't know Uh, her name is her name is heidi heidi oh okay um and i'm pretty sure um what is the scene that is does it go straight from ike the spike to this scene Ooh, i don't remember i can't remember i don't remember i'm pretty sure though yeah i just try, i just tried to i just tried to block all like the vegas and all the twin peaks scenes so yeah i can't recall exactly i think which, it's which scene came i think this. it's actually might be the scene we're going to talk about in a little bit uh with with richard horn and red there's someone <laughs> ah, mentioned right. something about a german i remember right before this scene someone mentions a german i'll have to go back and check i should really do these things but uh hmm. it's funny because then I, I just remember that that random ass bobby line i thought you germans were always on time um mm-hmm. which is what is that the last like when does that way just must be all over the the original run right i just don't remember her much. no i think she i think she just has a couple of appearances but yeah. it's just every, everybody loves her because she giggles and it's memorable just that so. gi- that giggling was the thing that you know instantly threw me back and uh it mm-hmm. goes right back to the pilot which is just which i don't know it's great it's, it's funny how the show can do that it can just kind of you just you know watch some horrible terrible thing and then next thing you know you're at the double r and you're like oh miriam heidi pie you, you know what i you know what i really wish made a return was the uh the dancing guy in twin peaks high from the pilot oh my like, god that, that would have yes that would have been a bit of that would have been a bit of fan service that i would have really enjoyed if like in the background of one of these scenes you just do you just see him do his like slick little dance for no reason i'm pretty that sure really uh, that's like when that's when I fell in love with Twin Peaks, probably. <laughs> like I was watching, yeah. I was watching the show already with like, or watching the pilot already with like, already wanting to like it, and then you know the hallway clears and this kid for fucking no reason just does this sweet little dance off screen. It's maybe, it's maybe second only to the scene in Fire Walk with me where Bobby like backwards walks through the courtyard <laughs> into the school after talking to Lara. Um, Mm-hmm. Just this super fucking funny goofy moment that happens re- like literally for no reason. Um, besides that, it's funny and awesome. I love that guy. That little backwards uh, that backwards walk is so silly. Yeah, it is. It's 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 adorable. So yeah, Heidi is sort of fitting in with that uh, that long tradition of just the weird little weird little Twin Peaks people that that have a cute little gimmick. And uh, you know, she's talking with Miriam. Miriam. She just she loves Norma's pies. She says to Shelly, you know, Norma makes the best pies, and Shelly says she sure does. And you know, that's pretty much all we get from this scene. Like I said, just a really heartwarming little little scene of the double R. Mm-hmm. It does, uh, and 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 really, really the main the main point of it from a plot perspective is to introduce us to Miriam, who we're gonna see uh, in in a little bit here when she witnesses something horrible. So. Mm-hmm. Again, in Twin Peaks, we are reintroduced to Carl Rod, character from Firewalk With Me, runs the Fat Trap trailer park, played by the late, great Harry Dean Stanton, who is really just one of those actors that you just can't help but feel joy anytime he's on screen, because he's just, he's so great. 
He is, and I love that his his character's temperament has relaxed a bit. He's seemingly not as much of a uh, a grumpy old man who doesn't want to be bothered. Uh, he's he's offering people rides into town. He's doing all kinds of stuff. Yeah, he's he's definitely um, he's he's not as grumpy, but he's he, he's you know he's sort of an Eeyore-ish character a little bit. <laughs> That's like great, he, yeah. He has this conversation where he says he's like, uh, he says he's got nothing to look forward to except the hammer slamming down, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And uh, he has this great line about how he says he's like, I've been smoking for seventy five years every fucking day. Yep. Which I'm virtually certain was uh, a real life fact about Harry Dean Stanton. Really? Uh, that makes all the sense. He's, he's got yeah. that face. He's got that that grizzled, I've been smoking since I was like nine years old face. Um, yep. But and uh, Yeah. And he was like 90 years old when he's recording this, uh, when he's uh, filming this. Is scenes. he really? 90? Yeah. Well, he died when he was like 91 wow. or something like that. He looks really good for that, so, that age. It's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. And also uh, a Lynch connection as well. Um, if you haven't seen the film Lucky, I highly recommend it. Ooh, I haven't. Just just a great final performance from uh, Harry Dean Stanton. I don't know if it's like maybe he had another movie that he filmed before that that came out afterwards, but I, I believe that it was the final film that he he made, and uh, David Lynch has a small part in that. So, oh. um, yeah, interesting. So check that uh, out. Very very good movie. It came out last year. I really enjoyed it. And uh, another uh, piece of unfortunate trivia, this actor here who plays Mickey is actually, like, in jail now. I thought that. Yeah. mm -hmm. He, I think he, he, like, went to a Twin Peaks festival, like, last year. And then, like, I think, like, just a couple weeks later, he was arrested for assaulting his girlfriend. And I think it was, like, really serious. And he's going to be in jail for a long time. Well, fuck that guy. So that's a big downer. Uh, <laughs> but yeah this is his only scene and uh he makes reference to linda right. which got everybody all uh all a twitter because of course you know 430 richard and linda etc mm-hmm. and obviously it was a total red herring so just like the the original richard <laughs> i guess yep. like there's at this i think at that point in the show we've been hit over the head with so many double names and double meanings like there's really no reason to latch on to the name linda at this point it's a name it's a common name but yeah the internet was ablaze for quite quite a while with 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 connections trying to connect to that yep yep (laughs) and uh she she never comes up again and uh speaking of richard we get a, a lot of richard in this episode and the first scene that we get is a very, very curious scene with him and Red. Uh, Shelley's loser asshole boyfriend, Red, played by Balthazar Getty, who we get very little of in this season. In fact, I think this is just one of three scenes that he gets. We, of course, saw the unforgettable finger guns scene at the Roadhouse in part two. He gives and then we get... double finger guns to Richard in this scene. I don't know if you picked up. I wrote <laughs> oh, that down he? in my I'd... notes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> double finger guns. Oh, man. He does so much shit in this scene that maybe I noticed it and it was just like this, like the 27th most notable thing. But <laughs> right. yeah, he, he he shows up uh, in just one scene after this. And this is, this is by far his, his big moment here. So 
Richard is basically working for Red in a sense. Like he he's he's helping with the the smuggling of this drug called Sparkle, I guess, that is coming from Canada. And we see Richard I guess we don't see him, but as we cut into the scene, he has just snorted some of this drug. It's uh it's it's really good stuff. He likes it. How to describe what Red does here? I think I got it. So he takes a well he shows his hand and it's empty and then all of a sudden there's a mm-hmm. dime in it and then he takes mm-hmm. the dime and he twists it around his fingers and then he flicks it and we hear the sound of it spinning and we see richard look up at it fixated and then we see red look at richard and the next thing you know that dime is in richard's mouth to which richard spits it out into his own hand and at some point it disappears from his hand falls back down into uh, Red's hand, to which he then says, this is you, as it's on Tails, and then slaps it to his other hand and says, this is me, heads I win, tails you lose. I don't know why I remember that, but I was very, I felt like Richard Horn. Like, I felt like the dime, the, the, the dime was in my mouth. I felt the metal in my mouth. <laughs> I was like, ugh. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's a funky magic well, it's the sound design is really like weirdly good of the dime in his mouth. Yeah, like it really sounds like there's a dime in his mouth, and I had the same reaction. Like, ugh. It has. Yeah, it sounds like, like it's coming from the inside. It's, it's like you can you can yeah. feel like the the metal against the inside of your teeth. That weird like ugh. It's pretty pretty remarkable. I will say. You definitely accurately described what happened. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, that isn't that is indeed the uh, order of events. Red also he just he just spouts off a bunch of really odd non sequiturs here. He mentions having a bad liver yeah. and sort of r- rubs his liver. He asks Richard if he's ever seen the movie The King and I. He enacts some sort of like martial arts pose. I I think really the point of it is just that he's making Richard feel really small. And he's just, he's intimidating Richard by confusing him, essentially. Yeah, and you see the security guard in the back smirk a bunch. Um, like, he, he can tell he's just, yeah, he's fucking with him. He's making him, he, and he, calls, he calls him kid aggressively again when he tells him not mm-hmm. to. And then says that he would saw his head open and eat his brains if he fucks him over. It's, he's very clearly just being, uh, he's being intimidating in a way that apparently... David Lynch sees as uh, how, how this guy would act. Yeah, it's a very odd means of intimidation. Uh, I just, uh, I, watching this scene for the first time, just found it totally, you know, baffling and kind of silly. But when I watched it again with somebody else, the person I was watching it with was actually really disturbed by it. Like it made him uncomfortable? They were, yeah, like they were just like, holy shit, what is going on with this guy? And then like when he did the dime trick, they were just like, whoa that's really scary <laughs> so yeah i don't know so you know maybe that was the point of the scene uh maybe we're meant to feel as baffled and intimidated as as richard feels here but um yeah i think that's that that's the point of this is that richard is or i'm sorry red is asserting his dominance over richard yeah i think that there's there's a very odd i mean it's, it's it makes sense he's he he pisses off richard richard reacts in a way that that leads to the events that we're gonna have to talk about um mm-hmm. but the dressing on it like the the spice that that is added to yeah. that like like we could have had this scene where they meet 
and he could have just said he could have just been a dick to him he could have emaciated him Mm -hmm. but no he does a a weird magic trick (laughs) and and does non sequiturs yeah and this scene would have played out exactly like you like you said uh with any other filmmaker with red just sort of being like a you know a classic drug dealing dickhead where he just you know he's sort of a heavy and he, he he just uses a bunch of uh tough talking language towards richard but um this is david lynch so he does a, a magic trick with a dime and asks him if he's ever seen the king and i i mean it so, would work on me i wouldn't mess with that guy make a dime come no in listen mouth. listen if i was richard and i was like high out of my mind on sparkle and i, <laughs> I saw a guy do this shit i would just be like i'm not fucking with this guy yeah for real uh you mentioned the uh the smiling henchman in the background yeah. we cannot let this scene pass without heaping praise upon this guy oh. because that is that is my single favorite thing about this scene <laughs> it's amazing far. it's he's he that's another audience connection i think um and i don't know he must have been directed to do it right there's no way he was just laughing at the oh scene yeah in the background yeah no he's in he's in the shot yeah. the entire time the camera is on richard so obviously lynch just really wanted him to smile and uh, I, uh another thing i learned from the behind the scenes features is that he is actually the uh second assistant director for the show oh that guy is that's awesome yeah uh-huh yeah just glad to see him get some shine here just a just a delightful smiling henchman and he's he's really good so richard comes away from this still high out of his mind and he's really really furious that red had the nerve to call him a kid he's sort of speeding down the road in his big truck and he's like oh i'll show you a fucking kid we get again just a really brutal scene here of him hitting this boy and i thought for sure when the first time i saw this it's like oh we're not gonna actually see him hit the kid right like we're gonna hear it you know like we're gonna hear the sound of him hitting it and it's it's gonna cut away to like you know a stunned onlooker or something like that but no we get a real it reminded me of um there's a similar scene in the movie meet joe black which i don't know if you've seen with brad pitt and no 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 i have not where uh it's like the very beginning of the movie this happens to brad pitt where it's like he gets hit by a car and it just like just <laughs> just like zooms him off the screen right. in this way yeah and it, it reminded me exactly of that and so go ahead you gonna say something i was just no i was just gonna agree i was thinking the same thing just that it i was thinking there's no way i'm about to see this young boy get hit by a car and and, and that's exactly what you see not only that you get to see like they drive he drives a damn point home you see the mother holding him in his arms while people just watch people just look on completely in shock but this i think that this is the most unwatchable scene um in all of twin peaks or it's it's top three for me um just the when especially when you know it's coming too and you see them playing tag like the mother and the son playing tag and uh carl watching them and just the way that everything everything reaches that that moment even as it's about to happen you're just like oh my god no there's no way and then it, it it's just brutal man it's just and i think it's it was effective that they didn't cut away and didn't chalk it up to the fact that like yep and now we hit this little boy and let's move on to the next scene. It's like, no, he just did the, one of the most heinous things we've seen any character do on this show. 
And then immediately after, you you see him blame the kid for "I told you to get out of the way." Like he's just he's just the he's easily the most irredeemable human character um, that we that we come across in the show. Just a real oh my god! Just he just he's just a great actor. I have to give him credit because um, mm-hmm. he, anytime he's on scene, man, I just get sick to my stomach. Like it just really he's just got this really awful uh, portrays this really awful energy, uh, and 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 it's this scene really i really hate watching it i really do yeah it's it's really rough i do have to hand it to eamon farron who plays richard because he really bites into this role with uh, a lot of gusto and at no point even so much as attempts to turn richard into like a likable charismatic figure like he is just straight bile all the way through and I think that it's kind of a thankless job. He's he's not one of those villains that I think people are drawn to because there's like there's something kind of cool and relatable about him. I think a lot of actors sort of enjoy playing those kind of roles, you know? Like he's not the Joker. Right. You know what I mean? He's not an anti like he's just or any sort of even like like yeah. cool villain. Yeah, like his his crimes like assaults women including his own grandmother and like runs over a kid with his car there's no i don't know i don't know the word i'm looking for is here like his crimes aren't cool for like no they're not well he's not cool he's he's not cool no which is a problem to the viewer because as we can probably even say mr c is punch for punch a worse dude he's been doing it longer higher volume of evil shit he's done but I'll be damned if his intro isn't cool when we first see him. I'm excited to see him. He's it cool. is. He does terrible things. It is. But yeah. It is. And he's he's goofy, but he's also, he's competent and he has a plan. Whereas Richard is just sort of like this flailing, insecure, obnoxious, violent shithead. Yeah, he's a wildfire. You know. He's just like a, yeah. like totally out of control. Yeah, and... Like we mentioned before, Miriam, she she's the witness to his crime, and that's going to become very significant later on in the season. So is and oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, does this? I'm pretty sure that this takes place uh, at the same intersection that we see in Fire Walk with Me when Mike corners uh, Leland and Lara. I, I think. Does it? I think it maybe it does, but I think it does. I'm pretty sure that this location is used. Um, it just looked so similar to me. the The scene of when he when Richard cuts into the left lane and he goes across the crosswalk, I could have sworn that this was where we see Lara and uh, and Leland get confronted by Mike in that weird traffic scene in Firewalk with Me. Hmm, I'm not sure. I really don't know. Maybe it is. Um, I, I haven't really looked into that. Maybe you're right. I have no idea. Um, yeah, um, we'll, 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 we'll do a double check on this one. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, so, yeah, we get a really long, heartbreaking, difficult-to-watch scene here of the mother holding her dead child in, in her arms and Carl Rod coming over to sort of console her um this is a very divisive scene a lot of people really hate this scene and i can't say that i agree with those people i I think it's i think it's really effective for 
uh, a variety of reasons. What is I, what is the uh, argument against it necessarily? Well, I think people just sort of look at it as like grief porn. Oh, we're just we're sort of just wallowing in in misery, and we don't really know any of these characters. And a lot of people think that the acting of the extras around them is like over the top or something along those lines. You know, I and can see they, it. They they, they, just, they they find it kind of gratuitous. I don't think that's crazy, but what I'll say is like I just. <sighs> In terms of it being like quote unquote grief porn, would it be would it be less egregious to just show this child dying and just move on from it? Yeah. You know, like we've we've like like compare this to the scenes that we get of other characters dying. Like you know, like Richard, for example. Like that is totally unceremonious. Um, you know, Hutch and Chantal, same deal. I think that Lynch by the way that he depicts death really signals to us what he thinks about uh these deaths and i i just i like the way that carl rod is here as sort of like a witness to the horror of 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 richard and what has become of the next generation of twin peaks i sort of i look at carl rod not just in this scene, but in in a few other scenes as well as being like the moral compass of the show, and he's sort of here to to bear witness and to lend his heart out to the people who are really suffering, and he sees something very peculiar, which is this golden I don't know what you would call it. I think it's supposed to represent like the boy's spirit or his soul Mm -hmm. leave his body i think it's significant on a thematic level that carl rod is the one who sees this i don't i don't necessarily read into it like oh he's he's actually a lodge being or something like that i just think it's supposed to be sort of a i just think it's supposed to be sort of poetic you know yeah the uh the only other thing that popped into my mind was that i don't think that he's a lodge being i just think that Perhaps he's 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 connected, or he has like almost like a clairvoyance, um, like can right. bear witness to the sort of blending between the worlds. And I don't, I was like the obvious one is like yeah, it's hit, maybe hit the kid's soul leaving his body. The other one I thought was it could have been like him seeing Garmin Bozia leave uh, and go into this point. Like if, if he's connected in that respect, like if he's clairvoyant in that way because there's obviously like a massive degree of suffering happening um which it's not made exactly clear how those lodge beings acquire garmin bozia or if it like if it's just all of the suffering in the world like lump sum gets kind of dumped to the red room and then they feast on it i get the sense it's not that since it seems to be at a premium but it's i think it does makes sense yeah that carl rod would see that and that he he acts in a way as this um as this he he when he delivers a line about when like when he's hears becky and steven fighting does he deliver that line about it being a fucking nightmare or whatever he says does he say that like directly mm-hmm. into the camera 
Or if it's not, uh, it's I don't close. think it's. I don't think it's. Di- I don't think it's directly into the camera, but it, it's a shot that's like firmly fixed on him. Yeah, you know? it, and it it is definitely what you're thinking at the moment. But the scene itself, I would. I don't think that it's grief porn because porn is uh, exploitative. Like it's supposed to be like exploiting right. this thing, uh, or not porn itself is exploitative, but like that connotation is that that it's making uh like we're supposed to derive some sort of pleasure from that and i didn't see that that way at all in fact i think perhaps people were made uncomfortable by it which i think they should be i was but i wouldn't respond to that discomfort by saying don't show me this because as much as you know everyone can enjoy their leisure time however they see fit um and if you don't want to be made uncomfortable by something you watch like i don't fault you for that at all because who wants to be uncomfortable? I get it. But there's the thing that's, I think, being... There's a humanity in, to this this scene. And, you, you know, say... I thought the extras acting was a little commercial-looking myself. Like, uh, I mean, like, TV commercial. Like, kind of almost, like, vague expressions. But I wouldn't... I don't think it's completely outside the realm of possibility that that's... There's some sort of, like... Everyone watches but does nothing. And the only person who does something... It's Carl Rod, and all he does is walk right. up to her, put his hand on her, lay his hands on her, and just look at her. Doesn't say it's okay. Mm-hmm. Doesn't say anything. Just puts his hands on and gives her a genuine human connection, humanity. Like that's what was. That's what that scene was about. That's what the good characters have, and that's what the bad characters don't have. And most of us are just shocked at like it, it, it wasn't just like some crime it was a crime that would cause anybody in the vicinity to stop and just open their mouth and and cry and and do whatever all those people those extras were doing um i think it it for like you said for it to have just been yep hit a kid next scene that would to me would have been more like you could accuse that of being more grief porn esque because that then that would be, have just been like you get this big release of, the, of the, like this climactic kid gets hit by a truck scene and now it's over <laughs> yeah or at the very least it, it just would have felt more cheap in my opinion it would have it would have been a it would have been a uh, it would have been like shy like almost a cop out I feel like if you had just had the shot of the kid getting hit and then just Richard driving off it almost would have been like. It almost would have been like slapsticky or something. That's what I'm saying. That would have been to me more akin to, to something like that could be accused of being grief porn or could be accused of being exploitative. Yeah. Um, pers- mm-hmm. Personally, I think that this this scene displays a, a huge dose of humanity. That um, yeah yeah yeah, and um, I think you're right. I think Carl is 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 representative of that. I I really I find his his compassion towards the mother. And just the um, the the compassion in his eyes to be very very moving actually. Um, I'm I'm a fan of this scene. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think even it's... even though a lot of people even though a lot of people have issues with it, I increasingly find it significant. I think that it's it's the climax of this episode, and I think it exemplifies what this episode is about. It's about those twin peaks of compassion and cruelty and it comes to a head right there in that moment where you have the most visceral of uh like uh displays of cruelty and then uh an immediate response of uh of this just extreme wise minimalist compassion just 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 the hand on the shoulder and eye contact uh and that is 
in a way like that's the most effective means of, of just sharing uh, or empathizing with this person is just being like, I'm here too. Like you're not like you're not isolated. Yep. So I, I agree. I think that that's actually maybe this for as horrible as this scene is, it's probably the most effective of the episode and one of the more effective scenes in uh, the return as a whole. Mm-hmm. I agree. Elsewhere in Twin Peaks, there are things happening at the sheriff's station. We get a conclusion to the log lady's clue to Hawk about his heritage and it having something to do with what's missing and it relates back to, to Cooper in some way. Hawk drops a buffalo nickel in the bathroom. He spots the Nez, Nez Pierce logo on the door. He pries it open and he finds the the pages of Laura's diary. Now, there's some fishy stuff happening with this <laughs> this diary. Um that we, we can probably talk about next episode because it, because it becomes a little more relevant then. But I think that Lynch and Frost maybe made a little bit of a boo-boo as far as the continuity goes in terms of like um, how many pages are, are missing and, and how they supposedly got there, etc. But there's three um, there's three pages that Hawk finds. Yeah, yeah. Or, we'll we'll yeah. like there's yeah. We'll talk. We'll about cap that. that. We'll that, cap that it. Whole, okay. Yeah that that whole thing gets a little confusing, but. For right now, Hawk, he he finds these these uh, these pages, and it's it's just sort of um, it's sowing the seeds for this connection between Laura and Cooper that ultimately is going to become like the crux of the show at the end. So, more Doris, she yells a lot at Frank. Uh, her car won't start. Or, sorry, her father's car won't start. He can't back it out of the driveway. She's really pissed off, and she yells at him a lot about it. Mm-hmm. And the dispatcher, Maggie, tells us that her son committed suicide, and that's why we need to feel sorry for her. Eh. Um, I get, yeah, it's... it's I, th- I don't know what it is. is the point of the scene just to make you hate Chad even more is that like I, I guess is that really what we're I guess because like I don't I certainly don't have any feelings for Doris I can tell you that like well she's just not a character that you uh <laughs> that you that we know like uh I feel bad for anyone who had to go through that um and he, sure but sure. it's 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 like it's like just trying to trying to make us sympathize with her by saying that Oh, her son committed suicide. Like this is that's just kind of like a it's a little bit of a lazy move in my opinion. But I do think that the point of it is just to make us hate Chad more because we do get just a wonderful bit of dickheadedness from Chad here when <laughs> he says that he couldn't take being a soldier. Yeah, a- and he sort of does the little cry cry baby motions with his hands. It's just like, oh my god. Yeah. It, Chad is such an asshole. It's it's great. It's a weird scene, uh especially given that af- right after that we get a pan to that weirdo cop who is just sitting there staring <laughs> off into space <laughs> at nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I think his name, I looked it up. I think I, I might have forgotten it, but I think his name is like 
His name is like Officer Jesse or something like that. Classic Jesse. He's just totally. He's he's the most inconsequential <laughs> member of the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station by far. The way um, he walks into that room still gets me, and he does that weird stance <laughs> for like a few seconds. <laughs> uh, yeah. Excellent. Yep. Yep. So that's pretty much that. The other significant scene that we get in this episode is. Our introduction to Diane. We finally meet the mythic Diane, who up until this point was just a, not even a voice on the other line for Cooper, just this person that we assume exists because Cooper says he, she does. A lot of people had theorized prior to the season that Diane might not even be real. And that, is, yeah. and that Cooper was, yeah, and that Cooper was just sort of like, it was just sort of a justification for for Cooper to record everything that was happening to him. I thought it might have, yeah, just been a quirky little uh, just thing. Because one time I, w- I went to uh, this store and I saw the security guard had his walkie-talkie, and the walkie-talkie just had a piece of like tape on it, and it had the word the name Diane just printed onto his walkie-talkie. And all I could imagine was this guy just picking up his walkie-talkie every few seconds, just being like, "Diane, I'm standing in aisle seven. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and all the workers just being like, "Dude, would you? Who are you talking to?" <laughs> but yeah, um, did I'm when, holding in my hand a box of chocolate bunnies. <laughs> when you saw um, uh, the back of this woman's head, did you immediately think Diane before Albert even said anything? Like I did. Um, no, I thought Laura Dern. I thought it was definitely going to be Laura Dern. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't think it was going to be Diane necessarily. But I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah. I would say I had a. Hun- I was the opposite. I had a hunch it would be Diane, and I was pleasantly surprised to find out that it was Laura Dern. Hmm. I I figured it was going to be Laura Dern just because of how dramatic the intro was. You know, right. David Lynch just showing showing a little bit of love to his favorite actress there. You know, I just had a feeling that when she turned around, it was going to be uh, Laura Dern. And yeah, this is this is our intro to Diane who. I think it's safe to say is one of the most curious, baffling, complex characters on this show. Yeah, in a sense, that's not actually Diane. That's that's the Diane Tulpa. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because so. we've we've talked about who the real Diane is, and it's it's NATO. Mm-hmm. Boy, so much to talk about with Diane. Uh we will over the course of uh this podcast obviously but for now she greets albert and oh we can't skip over our wonderful <laughs> introduction to oh, this we would scene. be in remiss a remiss oh too. my goodness we cannot we cannot look over albert getting out of his car into the rain sort of scurrying into this bar max Vaughn's bar it's called and he says, fuck Gene Kelly, you motherfucker. <laughs> it's just one of the most brilliant lines of this of this season. Uh, I I mean, for all the, the for as reserved as Albert is uh, in season three in comparison to to the original run, his outburst moments are just like after flames. They're so good. Uh, yeah, that that outburst just. And just man, it is coming down too when he gets out of that out of that car. It is mm-hmm. fucking raining. Mm-hmm. 
Oh yeah, it's it's raining like hell. Which I mean, you know, who to blame except for Gene Kelly for this situation? I had a th- uh, three-year-old um, drum student this one time, and he was obsessed with singing in the rain for some reason. And he's three years old, so like you can kind of only get him to to cooperate for so long until he eventually just wants you to put on uh, singing in the rain and play drums to it while he does the entire dance routine in the middle of your lesson room. That's a that was like three months of my life. Everyone's done. <laughs> wow. So, so every day he showed up, you two were like, "Fuck Gene Kelly, you motherfucker." I mean, that's that's the gist of it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> he was like, "Fuck Gene Kelly, dude. Check this shit out." And he did the whole damn routine. <laughs> One time he came in straight up dressed up like like Gene Kelly from Singing in the Rain. Had the whole what? Had the, had the the coat, the umbrella, and did the whole routine. This kid. He's four now. He's not my student anymore. But if this kid's not a Broadway actor, I'm going to be so vibrantly upset. Because sometimes he came up dressed it, dressed up as, like, he always was dressed up. He was, like, dressed up as, like, the, the Wizard of Oz. Like, the, or not, like, uh, like, Tin Man from the Wizard of Oz. Or, like, all these weird little costumes this kid had. But he loved. Wow. He loved singing in the rain. L- wow. Way more would, than Albert. I would love to... I would love to have a conversation with this kid's parents. Like, did they just show him, like, Singing in the Rain and then, like, all, like, the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers stuff and yeah, just try to, like, they, cultivate this this interest in their kid or what? Yeah, they think they started with, like, he loved The Wizard of Oz and I think they just kept showing him all the movies they watched when they were kids and he just, like, eats them all up. Apparently, the kid loved music, which is why, and, like, that's why they brought him for, for music lessons and then... All kids like hitting stuff with sticks, so that's why he did drums. Wow! So yeah, amazing. So uh, speaking of uh, speaking of music, Dylan, who? Um, let's get back into our one one nine music corner, shall we? Yes, and yes. talk about Sharon Van Etten performing the song. I don't know how it's pronounced, but Tarifa. Yeah, at the Roadhouse. Um. I like this song. It's a good little number. You? It's a good number. I like it too. Uh, I think I'm supporting my own theory that these are studio recordings that we're hearing, um, mm-hmm. because there's an acoustic guitar on the track. That's not to say that the, the I think the Jaguar that she's playing couldn't have an, an acoustic simulator pedal, um, but there's also no mics on the drums anywhere. There's mm-hmm. no overhead. There's no close mics. So. I think we're here in studio yeah. recordings, but I am not mad about that at all. Cause no, I think I think you're definitely right, at least for the vast majority of these performances. Certainly, I think logistically uh, it makes for, sense too. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, for those who don't know, Dylan is a professional musician, so he he knows of what he speaks on these matters. Yeah, and so, until someone who's more uh, legit than me DMs us and and uh, <laughs> and tears me a new one, and I'll go, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> Not possible, not possible. Um, yeah, I, I I like this song. I I like um, I just sort of enjoy the uh, the chord progressions here and just the way that they resolve throughout the song. Um, I I just I, I really enjoy. Yeah, I, um, I like the soundscape I like the too. too. I like the soundscape of the the synths with the guitar and how it all blends. Yep. Yeah, I'm a fan of this song. Uh, Sharon Bennett is a, a good artist. Um, with with uh, quite a few records that I, I enjoy as well, I hadn't really checked her out prior to this. I that is one function of uh, 
this the season of Twin Peaks is that it it has uh, introduced me to quite a few artists uh, that I was not otherwise aware of. So yeah, me too. Uh, David, David Lynch, the music curator. Um, yeah. So yeah, anything else you uh, you want to say about this song or uh, really just this episode in general before we uh, head out of here? Yeah. No the 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 song the song is just nice. It it, it obviously fits with the overall. Um, the overall flavor that we get from the roadhouse but i think that this episode is it's certainly i think it's certainly an important episode i don't know there's not a ton of plot implication but there is a lot of uh of that of flavor of that same thing of that um we we get a lot of we get a lot of uh i don't know what to call it ideology or philosophy in this episode and and i think it's cool how even though like this was not broken up or it was not filmed as um, episodic, it was filmed as sort of one long continuous thing and then edited into these uh, episodes. I think the editing really shines like strong on an episode like this, where this does feel like, like you can watch this episode and it sort of tells a story that has a climax and like a rising action, a climax, falling action kind of feel to it. Not exactly, but it, it has, it does have a lot of that, although there are obviously some uh, some slow scenes, but uh, it's it's one of the it's one of the more unique ones, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's actually surprising the degree to which a lot of these episodes really feel of a piece. You know, mm-hmm. considering, like you said, they were um, conceived as one giant eighteen-hour project. Um, I, I think a lot of the episodes definitely have their own character to them regardless yeah so wow dylan we are one third of the way through this thing can you believe it i know man it's uh it's moving so fast and we are but two episodes away from my favorite episode of television ever so i just can't wait to keep chugging along Hmm, which episode is that uh, episode eight i don't i don't really remember what happens in that one i'll have to refresh my memory yeah but, uh, we'll, we'll, yeah we'll, 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 we'll see we'll put a bookmark there yeah yeah all right well thank you to everyone who's been listening uh we really do appreciate it as always you can write into us if you would like to at 119podcast at gmail.com follow us on twitter at 119podcast you can find me nick at strenuous orb on twitter you can find dylan at piff dylan and uh, we're excited to uh, talk about part seven next week. So thanks a lot. Later, guys.